Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce, and I'm joined today by our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, the Salt Lake Tribune just concluded a special three-part series from Peggy on the challenges Western faiths, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, face in Russia, a nation dominated by the Russian Orthodox Church. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, obstacles is the government's ban on public proselytizing by these so-called outsider religions. Latter-day Saint missionaries, for instance, are called volunteers. Here to talk about the status of Mormonism in Russia is David Stewart, an independent demographer who co-founded the Camorra Project, which tracks, among other things, Latter-day Saint growth around the world. Stewart also served a mission in Russia. He joins us today from his office in Las Vegas. David, welcome. Thank you, Dave and Peggy. So you were a missionary in Russia in the 1990s. Where did you serve and what was it like? I served in the St. Petersburg Mission, and it was a very dynamic time with the opening of Russia to, to the West with new freedoms of travel, freedom of religion, and it was a very different atmosphere from what I'd experienced growing up in the eastern United States. Were, were you among the first to go in? When, when, when did missionaries start going to Russia? Uh, missionaries had been in Russia since the late 1980s. Uh, the mission was formally organized uh, in, I believe, 1991, and then I arrived in the summer of 92. Did, did, you, did you kind of feel like a pioneer there in, in Russia, and you and your, your colleagues? Well, there were uh, many people, a uh, number of missionaries before us who contributed greatly. I, I feel like the local members were the, the true pioneers. Mm-hmm. Did, how, what was the success like? How, how, what kind of success did you have? Well, uh, my companion and I, uh, we worked very hard. I, I felt a, a sense of urgency in the mission uh, in 1993, I believe there were about 500 baptisms in the mission, and then in 94, I believe it dropped down to uh, about 150, and then it had declined from there. And so, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, there were pioneers and, and forerunners before us, and uh, the success experienced by individual missionaries to a great extent reflected the effort that they put forth. Now, obviously, back then, the climate was much different. I mean, the political and religious climate back there than what, what we're seeing now. Did you have any sense back then that something like what the current conditions are like would unfold? I mean, was there any opposition when you were there from, from government forces or, or from the Orthodox Church or... Yes, uh, yes and yes. Uh, when I was there, I worked with some sense of urgency because I felt that a confrontation with the West is something that, perhaps if not inevitable, was likely given uh, the, the past history of the Russian nation and the oppression of religion for many years throughout the communist era. Uh, we did experience... Uh, opposition from, especially from uh, Russian Orthodox, although we actually had a a very nice Orthodox priest who had come to one of our meetings in the Kupchina region and uh, introduced himself. He'd actually seen a special 
on uh, the Mormons on television and noted that many elements of LDS history were similar to uh, elements of uh, the that the Russian faith had experienced the old believers uh, in in history. Uh, he was uh, very kind and thoughtful, but uh, uh, in other cases there were uh, priests who were going around and trying to agitate against the LDS Church, trying to encourage, uh, for instance, land, landlords not to rent meeting spaces to us, uh, and this kind of thing. And, and ultimately, uh, that was the, the faction within the Orthodox Church that I think uh, gained the upper hand. So have you kept in touch with some of the people that you baptized or knew back then, and how, uh, how they described this... Um, uh, events over these, this trend, I guess you would say, over these this decades. Uh, yes, I, I have kept in touch, and uh, obviously it's it's challenging. And I can provide a little bit of background. I, I think to understand the the mindset, one has to look back a little bit further into the communist era. Uh, when I was in Moscow, actually in June. Uh, the driver uh, who was taking us around had mentioned uh, as as we discussed uh, the religious environment, a statement of Lenin in which Vladimir Lenin had written to the Politburo in, in 1922 to the effect uh, the more reactionary clergy you will execute, the better. And the KGB during the communist era uh, saw the suppression of religion, especially the Catholic uh, Church and some other churches, as as important to being able to enforce its agenda. Uh, and this occurred with, of course, tragic uh, consequences on a massive scale. Uh, thousands of, of churches in the Russian Federation were shut down. There had been, been thousands, and, and uh, in one year alone, uh, over 38 uh, thousand uh, Orthodox clergy were, were killed. Uh, this was in, in the late 1930s. Uh, and so people were wary of religion because they knew that they could be blacklisted, they could be, uh, they could lose their job. There were some uh, people who even had been committed to uh, psychiatric institutions because of their uh, religious beliefs. So when when uh, the atmosphere opened up to allow proselytism in the late 1980s, uh, there was a surge in religious activity, but it didn't take too long before there was a, a backlash, uh, both from the Russian Orthodox Church and to some extent from the government. And so people were, were wary of this. The local members, they felt like the LDS members felt like many of them were were perceived as potentially as spies or, or agents of the United States. And so uh, this posed uh, challenges for them. There was one uh, individual when uh, I and my companion were, were proselytizing in, in uh, Kolpina, which is a city just south of St. Petersburg, Russia, who was taking the discussions with us, and he and his family were prepared, preparing for baptism. And uh, one, one day uh, he came to our meeting and told us, I can't meet with you anymore. And we said, why, why, what, what happened? 
and he advised us that he had been approached by some individuals from the security apparatus who, in essence, had threatened his family and said, no, you work at a, a sensitive government uh, site, and uh, you need to leave this foreign religion alone, uh, or else bad things will happen in a number of, of, uh, of words. And so, uh, of course, we, we knew nothing about his his job or what he did that was, was sensitive, but uh, that's just one uh, example of, of pressure that investigators uh, faced. So when do you, when do you think that the growth started to level off? You mentioned 500 baptisms and it went down. Really, when did you see that the enthusiasm and excitement of baptisms into the LDS church started leveling off? Was it as early as the 1990s? Because this definitely... 1994. 1994. Say yes. more about that. Well, I think that there were several factors in this, uh, Peggy. One was, uh, of course, the outside environment, that the novelty of the LDS Church, of these other groups that were proselytizing more evangelical Seventh-day Adventists, even Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, started to plateau, and uh, whereas there had been a, a void following the uh, initial uh, opening of communication and religious freedom, uh, at this point as well, the Orthodox Church was becoming more organized and uh, starting to engage in a, a counter-reformation of, form, uh, of, of a sort. They were taking the initiative to try to tamp down these uh, foreign movements, both by uh, agitating to government officials, uh, requesting more uh, regulation or more restriction. Uh, and there was more intimidation that was going on uh, as well. And then I, I think also some of the, the policies implemented in the mission field also uh, may have related to a decrease in missionary success. How, how so? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, we it, in Russia, of course, it, it was a new field for a new field of labor, and many programs were transplanted from the Utah Church to Russia, which may not have been entirely helpful. Uh, so, <laughs> very early on. Uh, there were these, for instance, slick marketing presentations uh, that we would hear at our, our zone meetings or, or mission conferences about how contacting non-members through one's, one's own efforts was ineffective. And if missionaries could get members to each bring a certain number of people into the church, and then they would bring more people in, that it would just grow that way, and that this was the, the best way to work, and contacting was ineffective. And I, I think it's not difficult to realize that this might be a reasonable approach in Utah where a single missionary companionship covers an area with thousands of members, but it's of limited relevance in an area where four or six missionaries are assigned to a branch with only 20 active members who each have their own family, work, and study responsibilities. And so what, what was the cost to members? I mean, the emotional sort of physical cost to members who did join, what, how were they perceived by their neighbors and co-workers? Was there sort of subtle social isolation for those folks? You, you had to be a, a special 
kind of person to join the church and and stick with it. And and I will say the the members that I know and have known in in Russia are some of the best Latter Day Saints that I've met anywhere in the world. These are people who were uh, in many cases uh, deeply committed, uh, profoundly spiritual. These are people who are are the real pioneers in in uh, moving forward with their beliefs, even in the face of considerable external uh, opposition. But you're right, an individual had to be prepared to to deal with uh, negative external pressures. The idea that uh, those who who, uh, were attending our meetings were somehow disloyal or unpatriotic, and nothing could be further from the truth. We had individuals that we taught who were members of uh, and who joined the church, who were members of the military, who worked in the branches of government. And these were very loyal, uh, patriotic uh, Russian citizens who also uh, believed in in the Church of Jesus Christ. So let's fast forward, David, to today a little bit. Um, What is the membership right now uh, in Russia? What is Mormon membership? Where does it stand? The nominal membership is uh, about... 23,000. Now, we don't have optimal, uh, actually a very little information right now, because for the last uh, couple of years since the 2016 uh, religion law went into effect, uh, the, the church has actually stopped reporting. And so 2017, 2018, uh, the church does not uh, report official figures because of uh, various regulations, the uh, membership roles have to be kept within Russia and ma- and maintained by the local Russian branch of the church. Mm-hmm. So that's the best estimate based on recent year figures. What's the activity level and how many congregations are there? Uh, so activity level initially was actually very good. Uh, during my mission, we had... Uh, uh, at least of the converts that I, I taught, over 80% were active a year later. Uh, mission-wide, it was, it was pretty good. It was over 50%. Uh, now, over time, things have declined related to external pressures and uh, these other factors. Uh, the research that Matt Mardnick and I have done uh, in querying members, return missionaries, and others have indicated that uh, some uh, congregations tend to have relatively high activity. Some in, in Moscow have a hundred or more active members, whereas others are are very low. There are, are some congregations with activity rates as low as as ten percent. And how many congregations are there? Uh, so that's also a a question. <laughs> a moving target, a difficult to, one. Yeah. Uh, so according to the LDS Meeting House locator, uh, which I checked last week, they reported 89 uh, Latter Day Saint congregations in Russia, hmm. and that's again considerably down from just a few years ago when they were reporting a hundred and uh, uh, reporting the hundred and twenty uh, range. So it appears that there have been. Uh, a number of consolidations over the last couple of years since the religion law uh, went into effect, and that's also the word that we've heard and have largely confirmed from uh, from member contacts as well as return missionaries. So what are some of the specific challenges that the members face today there? 
The the largest challenge, uh, I think, is the uh, restriction of any kind of, of outreach. So in, in my view, it's it's not even primarily about difficulty getting foreign missionaries in. It's about the fact that they have very little uh, opportunity, very few avenues to share their faith with others because public proselytism is banned. Even banned. even for the members there, right? Not just foreign missionaries. Even for the members, yes. Yes, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have experienced this um, extensive, even more extensively. Many Jehovah's Witnesses have ended up in, in jail, and in many cases, local uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, this is not just about foreign missionaries. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the church could do, the LDS church could do, to improve the lives of missionaries and members? Is there, are there any changes you would see uh, proposed that it could alleviate a little bit of this? Uh, so in, in regard to Russia, there are really very few uh, options. There's, there's, uh, the West has very little leverage with Russia. Uh, at the present time because of the current geopolitical situation and uh, Russia has already largely made a decision or at least the the current Russian government that they've been willing to deal with the Western sanctions rather than comply with various various concerns uh, and, and issues and so what that has done is from the standpoint of of Russia their leaders are rather unconcerned about what individuals in the in the West feel or what they believe or what European courts or human rights commissions say. Uh, and so the church has really done an outstanding job, I believe, of uh, always going in through the front door of uh, obeying and sustaining the law. Uh, uh, everything is is done on the table, and, and uh, when these laws come out, the church has followed them. In contrast with the Jehovah's Witnesses, who have continued a, a proselytism program even when it's been uh, banned. But uh, short of hoping uh, for some uh, change in the status quo, and the church, of course, has it's it's expressed its views. Uh, there's not a whole lot that can be done when all forms of public proselytism are, are banned and uh, members cannot disseminate religious literature. Um, they can't even uh, teach uh, non-members or have real gospel discussions outside of designated meeting houses. That seems, it's interesting to me, David, because, uh, I mean, there are five missions, and they're called missions, right, in Russia. Um, but they're really not staffed by what we would normally think of as missionaries. They're called volunteers. They're so limited. Um, so why even have missions and mission presidents? I mean, I'm just, is there, is there a different formula that would work? Well, uh, it, and that's the trend that has been occurring is that there's been a consolidation of missions. Uh, already three of the formerly eight missions in Russia mm-hmm. have been consolidated. The Russia Vladivostok mission was closed only two years into the mission presence, three-year term. The Russia Samara and the Russia <coughs> Moscow South mission were also closed. And uh, we have also been advised that the number of missionaries has, uh, in the remaining missions has declined markedly. And so 
in, I believe, June, I was told that there were approximately 35 missionaries in the Russia-St. Petersburg mission. Now, church-wide average missions run 150, some even 200 missionaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, when, When I was in Russia in the early 1990s, we ranged between 60 and almost 100. And so, it's it's a very small number, and again, missionaries are primarily in a support role. Uh, a support of the members, you mean, and the institution? Support, yeah. support of members, yes. Uh, service, <laughs> language teaching, those kind of things. But you're correct that how can you have a mission if it's not staffed by missionaries? They're volunteers. So mm-hmm. the nomenclature has changed, and, and there are service missions in, in the church, and so uh, I the church, I believe, wants to continue its its presence from that uh, perspective, and uh, they want to support the Russian people how they can. They want to do what they can that's humanitarian and charitable and helpful. They want to support the local members, uh, even if they're not allowed to engage in formal uh, proselytism. And that's actually been a model that has uh, occurred in some other parts of the world when full-time missions could not be established that did help to lay the groundwork for uh, later missionary efforts. Mormon Land will be right back. To celebrate the 100th episode of Mormon Land, we are recording live in front of an audience on Thursday, October 3rd at 7 p.m. at the Salt Lake City Public Library. Join us for this free event. For more info, visit the Salt Lake Tribune Facebook page. David, have you re- have you talked to any like recently returned missionaries from Russia or you or your colleagues? And and do they enjoy their experience there? Is it, it obviously it has some difficulties? It's not your typical Mormon mission. Um, it, it, it's an intriguing place to go, but they can't really act as missionaries. I mean, is it right. difficult? Do they enjoy it? it well, I, I think everyone is is, is different, and, and I think they can. Uh, answer directly in regard to how they feel, but the feelers that I've, I've put out and the responses I've received are, yes, that it, it is difficult to be on a mission and not really be a, a, a missionary in, in the sense of sharing the gospel, uh, a missionary in the sense of setting an example and supporting and strengthening leaders, but not being allowed to share beliefs. It's it's very difficult. Do you think it... <coughs> it helps or hurts hurts the church that lots of mission presidents who who are assigned to Russia don't speak the language I I have met at least two that I know of that were Americans who who knew how to be Latter-day Saint but they didn't speak the language so everything had to be done through translators I I, I don't think that's a big factor in my view Peggy I think that issues with the institutional mission, missionary program are likely larger factors than uh, the language skills of individual mission presidents. My first mission president, uh, Charles Creel, uh, had very limited uh, Russian skills. He used a translator, but he was well-respected. He communicated uh, with members. Uh, I think he did an excellent job serving as a mission president. Uh, and so I think that other factors are actually much more important than the, the language, as as valuable as it is. Do you think? Do you foresee a time when the country will forbid any foreign missionaries to enter? Uh, 
Well, I'm I'm not a, a political scientist, <laughs> or a so I'll have to defer that to those who who know more than than I do about uh, those areas. Uh, but I I would state that uh, I, I feel that the current situation is not one that can be sustained uh, indefinitely, uh, especially when one looks at the situation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So, so if if foreign missionaries, let's just say if they if they were gone you're saying it's not sustainable if the if the, the current situation necessarily or it could be difficult w- what would happen to the church if those pres- if that presence was gone if those foreign missionaries were gone the mission presidents all that's removed and you just had the locals there could the church survive let alone thrive well i i feel dave that more important than the presence or absence of foreign missionaries is for local members to be able to share their beliefs. And so my answer would be, if it were only about foreign missionaries and local members were able to share their beliefs, then absolutely. Uh, There have been areas, there have been places where missionaries have been withdrawn for extended periods of time, and the local members have stepped up. And there is a, a very strong leadership core of LDS members in Russia. There are a great number of return missionaries. That The number of local Russian missionaries has dropped somewhat in recent years, but the first few years, there were times when up to 25% of the missionary complements of some of the missions were, were native uh, Russian, and, and there were very large numbers of, of individuals uh, in seminary and institute preparing for missions. And, and so, yes, I think that they could. I, I think that there's an assumption that I would challenge in the idea that missionaries are always conducive for growth. I think they can help a certain extent, but uh, I think that there's also research that demonstrates that too much subsidization, too much reliance on missionaries can actually be counterproductive. And at a certain point, missionaries need to be able to step back and let local congregations do their thing and be able to thrive and survive. So the key is that those members are allowed to then do that, right? That that the conditions are right from the government or any laws that they're able to 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 live their religion to the full extent that they that, would want to. That's certainly how I see it, Dave. I, mm-hmm. I can tell you as well that for for many years and and uh, many and perhaps most of the Russian missions, uh, a large percentage of the convert baptisms have come from the member referrals. And the members have taken a leading role in uh, teaching and fellowshipping those individuals. Uh, and I'm aware of cases like uh, in Minsk, Belarus in the initial years and, and some others where where congregations actually did better when there were not full-time missionaries than uh, when they had a, a large number. But again, the, the key was that members were, were free to proselytize. If that's taken away, it's very difficult to see a path to growth or even to maintaining a, a stable membership when the church really doesn't have a, an avenue to, even to replace members lost to age or attrition or those kind of factors. Well, let's turn to President Russell Nelson in his first general conference as the president of the church, famously announced that the church intends to build a temple in a quote, end quote, major city in Russia. 
our story shows that even building a chapel, and you've referenced, can be difficult there. Do you see a Latter-day Saint temple anytime in the near future in Russia? Well, it, it, it's difficult to see how that would happen. Uh, obviously, President Nelson President, uh, knows many things that I do not, and so I don't presume to uh, be a, a prognosticator here. Uh, but certainly the, the current environment is very difficult, and as the Church has really not had the opportunity even to construct new meeting houses for some years, it seems that uh, something would need to change in the local conditions for that to be possible. What can a temple do for the members there? I mean, even more so maybe than in other places. Uh, local members have been visiting the temple in, in Helsinki, uh, that's where the St. Petersburg uh, members would, would go, and some of the other, uh, the southern missions would go to Kiev for many years. And this has just been a, a huge uh, way for them to strengthen their, their faith. Uh, I, I think it's, it's incredibly uh, important. Uh, and the challenge has been, uh, of course, the last several years as, as Russia has become more isolated, there, there are no longer any direct flights between Russia and Ukraine due to the geopolitical situation. Even mm-hmm. going to the West is, is, is more challenging to get to Helsinki. And so the local members really, they've, they've been accustomed to going to the temple for, for many years, uh, and they need something local that's accessible to them. So you see this as uh, as spiritually significant, but also in some ways symbolically significant for them, don't you think? Uh, very, very much so. Even from the very first days of the Russian missions, one of our, our focuses was building stakes and helping members to prepare for the time when there would be a, a temple in Russia. And this is something that local members have, have prayed for. It's something they've worked very hard toward Okay, well, the Jehovah's Witnesses we've mentioned, of course, uh, have, in some respects, I unquestionably suffered the, 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 the deepest cuts, I guess you could say. I mean, they have, they claimed at least many more members, but they've lost control of virtually all their, their kingdom halls, their meeting houses, and, and you noticed that, you know, you noted that some have been imprisoned. Um, is that a future that awaits the LDS Church, or, or what? What is the Jehovah's Witnesses? Why are they finding themselves in this situation? So the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, as you know, are also a restorationist-oriented movement. But where they have, where they seem to have come afoul, is in large part because of their rejection of any kind of civic participation. They will not salute the flag or pay homage to national symbols that they consider to be uh, idolatrous. They will not serve in the military or the armed forces. Uh, With some exceptions, uh, they do not vote in elections. Uh, They do not run for office. And so uh, actually many countries in the world at various times have uh, ended up at loggerheads with the Jehovah's Witnesses over this question or issue of whether the Jehovah's Witnesses are free writers uh, benefiting from the protections, the benefits of society without contributing. Now, the flip side of that is that these are uh, are very, in many cases, hardworking, uh, dedicated, and, and honest individuals. Uh, but I, I think that their future in Russia is actually fairly good. Hmm. 
Why, why is that? I mean, given, given the current situation they're in, why do you feel that? Uh, because the Jehovah's Witnesses have actually experienced the vast majority of their growth during periods when they have been uh, outlawed or restricted. Hmm. So if, if we look back, for instance, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, there were only 518 witnesses in Romania in 1936. By 1944, it had grown to over 9,600 and uh, over 12,000 by the end of 1945. If we look at those in the uh, former communist lands of Eastern Europe, uh, these numbers are not directly published in their yearbooks, but they're published under a heading called Other Lands, and there are ways we can we can uh, tease the data out. In 1953, there were about 44,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in nations of Eastern Europe. And uh, by 1991, uh, there were over 225,000 members who appeared on Jehovah's Witness, Witness membership rolls when they started being able to report their official membership. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses actually have thrived under these uh, conditions of, of persecution. I actually recently wrote uh, a number of articles on the Jehovah's Witnesses in Latin America in doing some research for the Encyclopedia of, uh, of Latin American Religion, which is being published by Springer. And in many of their histories, they acknowledge these practices of literature smuggling, surreptitious uh, witnessing, and clandestine meetings. And so the Jehovah's Witness organization is not going to go away. Um, they may even be strengthened by this. I, I spoke with uh, Jehovah's Witness uh, from School of Russia, uh, who was in Tartu, Estonia, when I attended a conference in June, and she told me that, yes, her experience is that the witness faith is growing there, and based on their recent statistics, it appears to me that the Jehovah's Witnesses are actually adding more members in Russia after the restriction than they were beforehand. So the opposition's good for good for the faith? Is <laughs> persecution. That, <laughs> the well, persecution I, is a good I, I thing? that. <laughs> I want to be sensitive to the fact that these persecutions mm -hmm. are real. These are people who have suffered. These are people who are suffering and have lost a great deal. But the orientation and the mentality is very different. Mm -hmm. The Jehovah's Witness faith, this is, this is a faith that survived Hitler, they survived World War II, they survived the communist period. There were actually very few uh, witnesses in Eastern Europe before World War II but now it's become largely the, re the leading opposition movement. It, it, the Jehovah's Witnesses established themselves in Poland during the Cold War period as the leading uh, protest movement to the Catholic Church, and it appears not improbable that they may be establishing themselves as the leading protest movement to the Orthodox Church in Russia during this uh, current uh, period period of religious restrictions. I mean, they're in a hard place in some respects because their very teachings are the things that set off the government, of course. Um, yet the LDS Church, of course, has this 12th article of faith, of course, that says you're supposed to, you know, subdue yourself to the government somewhat. Uh, 
you're not advising the LDS Church should ditch the Twelfth Article of Faith, right? And, and, uh, and take it, the Jehovah's in, Witness in no approach. Way. It, okay. It, in, in no way. And I've I've written up in in uh, one of my my presentations that there are a number of serious downsides to the Jehovah's Witness approach. It is not something that I can recommend to other uh, to other faiths to adopt as a model. Uh, for for a number of reasons, and one is that it does, it, it, in some ways, this kind of civil disobedience uh, runs afoul of laws, but a, a second, and I want to be respectful as well in noting that the Jehovah's Witness activity may fall within the religious liberties allowed by the Constitution, although not the current laws, but also this kind of thing is very hard on members. It, it, there are people who go to jail. There are people that suffer a lot. And many of the Jehovah's Witnesses understand that that's something that they're signing up for. Uh, the LDS Church has always tried to keep members and missionaries out of harm's way, which I, I think is, is very appropriate. Uh, and so I, I do not advocate uh, adopting their approaches in this regard. So what's your, what's your continued interest in this, Dave? In, in Russia, and what's your continued involvement? So in recent years, I've traveled much more frequently to Ukraine and other nations of Eastern Europe simply because it's, they don't require a visa. It's easier to get in and out, and Russia has very, uh, as you know, very limiting restrictions such that one cannot share religious literature. You cannot even uh, share your beliefs if someone asks you about them outside of a registered meeting place. And so in regard to Russia, I have tried to keep abreast of the situation. I've tried to support uh, friends and local members uh, who were just wonderful people. But beyond that, there's there's really little or nothing that one can can reasonably do to support at, at this point. David Stewart, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Dave. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher-Stack as well. Always a pleasure. You can read her series at sltrib.com. We also thank our producer, Sarah Weber, and we'll talk again next week on Mormonland. 